You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for downloading episode 41 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Y'all will remember that we used the last show to bring Robert E. Lee's life up to speed with the podcast timeline. And we ended the episode with his resignation from the U.S. Army on April 20th, 1861. After his resignation from the Army, Lee quickly applied himself to the task of setting Virginia on a war footing. During his supervision of his native state's mobilization, Lee remained mostly in Richmond. Also in Richmond at the time was Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens. Stevens was there to champion the establishing of close relations between the Confederate government and Virginia, even though the Old Dominion's secession wouldn't be official until it was ratified by the state's voters on May 23rd. Stevens' mission was obviously a success, since, as we mentioned previously on the podcast, well before that May referendum, on April 27th, the Virginia legislature invited the Confederate government to select Richmond as its new capital. But in April, Alexander Stevens was also concerned to sound out Robert E. Lee and secure Lee's loyalty to the larger cause of the Confederacy. Lee affirmed that he would not quibble or quarrel about matters of rank and status in the new Southern Army, and that he would mobilize Virginia's military forces and cooperate in any way he could with the Confederate government. But Robert E. Lee's activities in Virginia were by no means unique. Across the rest of the Confederacy, the other Southern states were also busy raising troops, training them, equipping them, and stationing them at key points close to home, or else placing the newly organized regiments under the control of the Confederate government. So in the spring of 1861, we have both the North and the South hard at it, raising regiments, equipping them with arms and uniforms, organizing war production, supply, and transportation. But what was the goal of all this martial activity? Now, that may seem like a pretty simple question. You could answer it by saying, well, duh, the goal of all that activity on both sides was to get ready to fight the war. Well, okay, fair enough. But you can't stop there. You have to ask, how was each side going to fight the war? In other words, what kind of strategy would the Union pursue? And what kind of strategy would the Confederacy pursue? And to answer those questions, we need to examine just what each side hoped to accomplish through going to war, because what each side hoped to accomplish would determine the strategy they decided to pursue. Does that make sense? 
Well, basically, in going to war, you have something you want to accomplish. You have a goal, right? And how you employ your armed forces in pursuit of successfully achieving that goal is called strategy. So let's start with Confederacy, since we began this episode on that side of the Mason-Dixon line. So what did the South want to accomplish in 1861? Well, very simply, the 11 states that seceded and formed the Confederacy wanted to successfully establish the independence of their southern slaveholding republic. The new Confederate States of America had but one objective, to establish itself as a full-standing independent nation. And what was obvious from the start is that this did not require the conquest of the North. The new nation had only to maintain its existence and gain formal international recognition. That political aim seemed to indicate that a defensive military strategy was called for. In other words, since the war aim of the Confederacy did not require the conquest of the North, the South could remain on the strategic defensive and still win the war. But if it seemed obvious that the Confederacy should adopt a defensive strategy, how best to carry out that strategy remained a challenging question. Should the armies of the Confederacy rest content with repelling invasions, or might they consider counterattacks, even invasions of the North? Would the Southern public be content with waging a passive defense? And did the Confederacy have to defend every square inch of land within its borders, or might it trade space for time while consolidating its forces at key points? And finally, there was the question of foreign recognition. What military policy would best help the Confederacy's quest for formal international recognition? Well, so going through all of those questions is just to show that political and cultural interests, as well as military concerns, went into shaping Confederate strategy. After secession and the outbreak of war, the new Confederacy was presented with the daunting task of defending itself over a vast frontier that stretched from the Atlantic seaboard westward over the Appalachians, across the fields of Tennessee, and into the Great Plains. The new nation also had to guard an extended coastline against an enemy with an established navy. Jefferson Davis, the president of the CSA, made an early decision to rigidly defend as much territory as possible. He rejected a more flexible defense that would have gathered forces in areas most likely to be targeted by major Union offensives. By choosing to disperse men everywhere, Davis failed to address the chief problem in defending the South, and that was the fact that the Confederacy simply didn't have the manpower necessary to defend its entire territory. The sheer size of the country made defending it a daunting task. The 11 states that made up the Confederacy covered more than 750,000 square miles, as large as all of Western Europe. But the flip side of that same coin is that the sheer size of the Confederacy also seemed to make subjugating it appear to be a daunting task. Southerners, and most European observers, simply didn't believe that the federal armies would be able to conquer such a vast piece of territory inhabited by a hostile populace. In their own eyes, Confederates established their country two months before the firing on Fort Sumter, so when the war came, they could claim their aim was to defend themselves and maintain their independence. And so on April 29th, Jefferson Davis could announce to the world, quote, We seek no conquest. No aggrandizement, no concession of any kind. 
All we ask is to be let alone. End quote. This statement is, of course, part propaganda, part self-rationalization, and part genuine conviction. Davis was claiming that northern aggression forced a war upon a people, a country that wanted only to be independent and free from outside interference. To be let alone, Confederates needed only to sit at home and swat away invasions by the North. But actually, never was it true that all the South wanted was to be let alone. From the start, the Confederates pursued not only the goals of achieving independence and maintaining territorial integrity, but another war aim was the union of all the slave states. Because keep in mind that in 1861, four slave states did not secede. Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware. And so, without those slave states, the Confederates saw their glass as one quarter empty. From the start, Jefferson Davis and the Confederate leadership had in mind a kind of Southern Manifest Destiny that envisioned their slaveholding republic stretching north to the Mason-Dixon Line and the Ohio River, and west to the Rocky Mountains, including all 15 slave states, and the territories of the Southwest. As we'll see as we continue on with our story in future episodes, the vision of fulfilling this Southern Manifest destiny shaped an aggressive Confederate war policy and strategy. So when Jefferson Davis proclaimed the Confederacy sought no conquest, he meant they did not seek to conquer any of the free states, nor to carve out an unfair portion of the territories as their own and military operations that swept into the border states would not be invasion and conquest, but would be liberation of fellow slaveholders from abolitionist oppression. Well, whatever political cover Davis's claim of wanting to be left alone provided the Confederates, their actual desire to pursue a sort of Southern Manifest destiny ensured more than anything else that the Confederacy would not adopt a purely defensive strategy. As we'll see, just as it was for the Confederacy, for the Union, determining how to wage the war was also just as dependent on political concerns as it was on military factors. But to start off, let's ask... In 1861, what did the North want to accomplish by going to war? Well, very simply, in 1861, the North fought to put down the rebellion and reunite the country. As we said previously on the podcast, Abraham Lincoln, when faced with secession, Lincoln was willing to go to war to preserve the Union. But how best to achieve that goal remained a challenging question for some time after the beginning of the war. As we'll see as we continue with our story in future episodes, the Lincoln administration started off in 1861 looking to wage a limited war, but then eventually decided total war was needed to defeat the Confederacy. Or if you prefer, some people use the terms soft war and hard war to describe the transition in federal strategy. But the North initially started off with a strategy that emphasized limited or soft war because Lincoln and Seward and many others held on a long time to the belief that old loyalties to the Union would revive in the South if the North followed a conservative course in waging the war. In this conservative course, or in this limited or soft war strategy, 
It was stressed that the North was going to war to preserve the Union, not to upset the Southern apple cart by messing around with the South's institutions and way of life. In other words, Lincoln, in 1861, wanted it to be perfectly clear to everyone that the North wasn't going to war to free the slaves and destroy the South's way of life. No, the North was simply going to war to reunite the country. Now, with rebellion having become war, the Confederate armies obviously had to be defeated, but the object of the Union war effort was to be friendly reunion, and so the Confederacy must be conciliated even as war was being waged. This delicate balance between carrot and stick would be achieved by a limited or soft war strategy that saw scrupulous protection given to unarmed Southerners and to Southern property, including slaves, and the military actions of the war would be conducted so that they would not unduly inflame passions or anger on either side. This soft war strategy was exemplified by the mindset of Union General George McClellan, who would assure Virginians, quote, I have not come here to wage war upon the defenseless, upon non-combatants, upon private property, nor upon the domestic institutions of the land. I and the army I command are fighting to secure the Union and maintain its constitution and laws, and for no other purpose. End quote. The soft war strategy was based on an erroneous but widely held assumption in the North that there was a residual loyalty to the Union among the silent majority of Southerners. And so once the federal government demonstrated its firmness, such as by establishing a blockade and by raising large armies, then those presumed legions of Southern Unionists would rise up and bring their wayward states back into the Union. In July of 1861, Abraham Lincoln would tell Congress, quote, It may well be questioned whether there is, today, a majority of the legally qualified voters of any state, except perhaps South Carolina, in favor of disunion. There is much reason to believe that the Union men are the majority in many, if not in every other one, of the so-called seceded states, end quote. And so at the start of the war, to conciliate that supposed silent majority of Southern Unionists, we find Lincoln promising that the Northern armies would avoid, quote, any devastation, any destruction of, or interference with property, or any disturbance of peaceful citizens, end quote. The most important and vulnerable form of Southern property was slaves. So the Lincoln administration went out of its way to reassure Southerners in 1861 that it had no designs on slavery. But there were those in the North who, even in 1861, realized that this limited or soft war approach just wasn't going to cut it. As James McPherson points out in an essay titled From Limited to Total War, 1861 to 1865, Abolitionists and radical Republicans contended from the start that a rebellion sustained by slavery in defense of slavery could be defeated only by striking against slavery. As Frederick Douglass put it, quote, To fight against slaveholders without fighting against slavery is but half-hearted business and paralyzes the hands engaged in it. Fire must be fought with water. War for the destruction of liberty must be met with war for the destruction of slavery. End quote. Well, Frederick Douglass was right, of course. And by 1863, a series of congressional acts, 
plus Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, would radically enlarge the Union's war aims. After that, the North no longer would fight just to restore the Union, no longer just to ensure that the nation born in 1776 shall not perish from the earth. But after 1863, the North would also fight to give that nation a new birth of freedom, as the monstrous injustice and hypocrisy of slavery was crushed once and for all. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Back in early 1861, in the time just before Abraham Lincoln's inauguration, when seven southern states had already seceded, Senator William H. Seward of New York and Brevet Lieutenant General Winfield Scott were concerned about the slide toward civil war. The day before Lincoln took office, Scott wrote Seward a letter setting out a number of ways the crisis might end. His own preference, he stated, was that there would be an amicable split between North and South, but, Scott wrote, if it came to war, then the Union would find itself battling with as many as 15 seceded slave states, and such a struggle would last at least three years. The North, the old general-in-chief continued, would require an army of 300,000 men and, quote, commanders of genius, end quote, to win that conflict. Scott predicted that the cost of victory in human life and national treasure would be inconceivable. During the week that followed Lincoln's inauguration, Scott's letter appeared in all of the leading newspapers in both the North and South. In his excellent book, Days of Defiance, Maury Klein gives us this portrait of Winfield Scott. Quote, the general had long been Washington's most imposing monument, but he was now more like some ancient ruin, a magnificent mountain of a man eroded and crumbling with age, but still impressive in appearance. Standing a quarter of an inch above Lincoln's 6'4", he walked even a short distance with great difficulty. Age, infirmity, and an epicurean palate had ballooned his massive frame to somewhere around 300 pounds. 
At seventy-four, he could no longer sit on a horse, was afflicted with dropsy, and had lost the fire that once energized his blue eyes. Only his vanity, swollen with age like his girth, was equal to his reputation as the nation's foremost military hero since the sainted Washington. End quote. But while Winfield Scott was obviously not physically up to the stressful task of directing the day-to-day operations of the Union armies, there was nothing wrong with his ability to draw on a lifetime's worth of lessons in the American military to craft a war-winning strategy for the North. Winfield Scott eventually presented a strategic plan to the president that called for outflanking Richmond and its defenders by fighting the war from west to east. You see, Scott was certain the Confederates would devote a large field army to the defense of their capital city in northern Virginia, where the terrain heavily favored the defense. And therefore, a Richmond-based strategy would most likely result only in stalemate in the short term and would take years to produce victory. So Scott proposed to only maintain holding forces in the Eastern Theater, while out West, a force of 80 to 85,000 men, starting in Cairo, Illinois, was sent down the Mississippi to New Orleans. The drive south would be spearheaded by a specially built fleet of gunboats. With four and a half months to train the Union's volunteer army and a campaign beginning in November 1861, then cut the Confederacy in half down the line of the Mississippi, and with luck, New Orleans might fall in the spring. The entire rebellion would collapse soon after, and the war would be over by the summer of 1862. Winfield Scott's plan took into account military, political, and economic factors. According to the plan, the Union's control of the Mississippi River Corridor, combined with the growing effectiveness of Lincoln's naval blockade, would result in the southern economy grinding to a halt. And in order to minimize casualties on both sides, no major military offensives would be conducted in the east or would move into the Confederate heartland, thus giving political conciliation a greater chance to work on the latent unionism everyone was sure was still present throughout the south. Scott's staff, working on the final plan, recorded his calculation that the war could be over by the summer of 1862, and to others the old general-in-chief even optimistically predicted that his strategy could defeat the rebellion by the spring of 62. Back in March, when Scott had written to Seward to say that if the crisis led to civil war, the struggle would take at least three years, and the North would have to field an army of 300,000 men, the press had reacted with scorn. There was a cartoon that portrayed a large black snake slowly crushing the South to death over a period of three years. This, the cartoonist scoffed, was the feeble old general's anaconda strategy. It appears that that memorable image, along with some later sketchy cut-and-paste reconstruction of some correspondence between George McClellan and the general-in-chief, led the president's secretaries, John Hay and John Nicolay, after the war to mistakenly label Scott's final strategy as the notorious Anaconda Plan in their ten-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln. But in reality, Winfield Scott's final plan actually predicted that victory could be achieved according to a much quicker timeline by the summer of 1862. Well, be that as it may, but by the time Winfield Scott revealed his plan at a meeting with the president in late June of 1861, Lincoln was already under increasing pressure from northern newspapers and the northern public who had taken up the battle cry, Forward to Richmond. 
For weeks, the governors most enthusiastic about raising and equipping regiments for federal service had been pressing Lincoln to advance into the South, and the Northern press quickly took up the cause, pointing out that the Union armies were 150,000 strong and growing, while ignoring the fact that the eager volunteers were still raw and untrained in anything beyond simple drill. On June 24th, the New York Tribune ran a streamer across its editorial page that trumpeted, Forward to Richmond! Forward to Richmond! That banner was reprinted day after day and was soon echoed across the rest of the northern press. We don't want to get too far ahead in our story, but it was against that intense pressure for an immediate strike against the Confederacy that Abraham Lincoln called a cabinet meeting for June 29th in the White House Library, where he heard out both Winfield Scott and Irvin McDowell as to their respective plans. A month earlier, McDowell had been promoted from Major to Brigadier General and named to command the new Department of Northeastern Virginia. Right. But anyway, at that meeting in the White House Library, Lincoln decided to go with McDowell's plan for an advance into Northern Virginia, which led to the First Battle of Manassas, fought on July 21st. But we'll go into that in more detail when we get to our discussion of that battle. For now, we'll just point out that while Winfield Scott's cautious approach to waging war was overwhelmed by the outpouring of aggressive chest-thumping from northern politicians and newspapers, still key elements of Scott's plan, the reliance on the effectiveness of the blockade, the seizure of the Mississippi River Corridor, and fighting the war from west to east, those features of Scott's plan eventually proved to be essential elements in the war-winning strategy that led to Union victory in 1865. So, in effect, the war was eventually won in much the fashion Winfield Scott had anticipated. It's said that a journey of a thousand miles must begin with a single step, and one of the very first steps in the Union's long journey in pursuit of victory took place just across the river from Washington, D.C., You guys will recall how we said previously on the podcast that, for all intents and purposes, Virginia joined the Confederacy in mid-April 1861, when the state's secession convention voted to take the Old Dominion out of the Union. But we also said that the state's secession wasn't official until Virginia's voters took it up in a referendum scheduled for May 23rd. Well, by late May, with Washington safe, its connections with the North secure, and with trainloads of enthusiastic troops pouring into the capital every day, Abraham Lincoln and Winfield Scott turned their attention to the upcoming referendum in Virginia, which everyone fully expected to ratify the work of the state secession convention. In anticipation of the referendum's result, Winfield Scott made preparations to respond immediately with an operation designed to cross the Potomac River into Virginia and seize the port town of Alexandria and also Arlington Heights, which overlooked the nation's capital. On May 23rd, the Virginians voted, and as everyone expected, they ratified the Articles of Secession, and so Winfield Scott put his plan into motion. At 2 a.m. on the morning of May 24th, under the light of a brilliant moon, three detachments of Union infantry, supported by some artillery, moved out from the Washington side of the Potomac. 
The operation was under the overall command of Colonel Joseph K. Mansfield, a 58-year-old regular Army staff officer who was a favorite of the old General-in-Chief's. Back in April, with Union troops starting to pour into the capital, Scott had assigned Mansfield to the command of the newly created Department of Washington. But then, since most of the forces assigned to this particular operation were from New York, field command was assigned to Charles W. Sanford, a major general in the New York militia. This small invasion of Northern Virginia was designed to be a three-pronged assault across the Potomac. The right wing, a column under the direction of regular Army Captain W.H. Wood, consisted of the 69th, 28th, and 5th New York regiments. That column crossed the Potomac over the Aqueduct Bridge. Downstream, regular Army Colonel Samuel Heinzelman led the 1st Michigan, the 7th, 12th, and 25th New York, and the 3rd New Jersey over the river via the Long Bridge. And finally, the celebrated Colonel Elmer Ellsworth and his fire zouaves crossed the Potomac on a steamer and landed directly at Alexandria's waterfront. Now, you have to understand that the 24-year-old Ellsworth was about as close to being a rock star as you could get in 19th century American society. Before the war, when almost every American town sponsored its own volunteer militia company, Ellsworth turned himself into the nation's foremost parade ground soldier as commander of the U.S. Zouave Cadets, whom he had transformed from a lackluster group of Chicagoans into a champion drill team. Ellsworth modeled his unit after the exotic French Zouaves of Crimean War fame, dressing the men in a uniform based on the North African soldier's native costume a combination of short, collarless, bolero-style jacket heavily decorated with false pockets, a sleeveless vest, baggy red trousers, and white canvas gaiters. Using a variety of the French light infantry drill and dressed in their outlandish uniforms, Ellsworth and the cadets embarked on a six-week tour challenging militia units in the Midwest and Eastern states to drill competitions. In New York City, Thousands watched their displays, and Ellsworth became a national celebrity. Almost immediately, in both the North and South, many militia companies adopted their own colorful, fanciful versions of the French Zouave uniform. As for the dashing young Elmer Ellsworth, a friend said, quote, His pictures sold like wildfire. Schoolgirls dreamed over the graceful wave of his curls. End quote. Ellsworth was also a particular friend of Abraham Lincoln, having clerked briefly in Lincoln's Springfield, Illinois law office. Ellsworth campaigned for Lincoln in 1860, and then as a bodyguard, he accompanied the president-elect on his inaugural journey eastward. When war came, Ellsworth hastened to New York City to raise a Zouave regiment for the Union. Most of his recruits were tough Manhattan volunteer firemen, and thus was born the 11th New York Volunteer Infantry Regiment, also known as the Fire Zouaves. Departing New York on April 29th, the Fire Zouaves were welcomed by President Lincoln himself when they arrived in Washington, and Presidential Secretary John Hay described them as a, quote, jolly, gay set of black guards, end quote. And Hay's description was borne out by the firemen's wild antics while they were billeted in the nation's capital. 
Ellsworth pulled strings to guarantee his men would be part of the expedition to seize Alexandria and Arlington Heights. And so at daybreak on May 24, 1861, a steamer put Ellsworth and the fire zouaves ashore at an Alexandria dock. Ellsworth was resplendent in a new uniform, and pinned to his chest was a gold medal that was inscribed in Latin, not for ourselves alone, but for country. As they advanced into the town from the waterfront, the Union soldiers met no resistance. Alexandria's only Confederate defenders, a sprinkling of local Virginia militia, were hurriedly skedaddling. Ellsworth dispatched one company to capture the railroad station, while he and a small detachment set off to take the telegraph office. A few blocks up King Street, Ellsworth's group came upon an inn, the Marshall House, which was flying a large Confederate flag from the roof. Ellsworth called out, Boys, we must have that flag, then rushed into the building and started upstairs. Reaching the roof with several companions, Ellsworth tore down the flag and, clutching it in his arms, started to retrace his steps back down to the street. But as the small group descended the staircase, the inn's proprietor, a man named James W. Jackson, stood waiting on the third-floor landing with a double-barreled shotgun. One of Ellsworth's companions, Corporal Francis Brownell, batted at the shotgun with the barrel of his musket, but Jackson fired and Ellsworth was hit in the chest, mortally wounded. Jackson fired his second barrel at Corporal Brownell, but missed. Brownell fired an instant later and hit the innkeeper flush in the face. As Jackson fell, Brownell bayoneted the body and sent it crashing down the staircase. Then the Union men turned to Ellsworth. He lay dead on top of the Confederate flag, his blood staining it, his gold medal having been driven into his chest by the shotgun blast. Ellsworth was the only Union casualty in the otherwise completely successful operation to seize a foothold on the Virginia shore. One of Ellsworth's companions on the staircase had been a correspondent for the New York Tribune, but even without that, the account of Elmer Ellsworth's tragic death would have still been sensational news throughout the North. The famous young officer's death plunged the Union into mourning. Bells tolled, flags flew at half-staff, at the President's orders, an honor guard brought the body to the White House, where it lay in state on May 25th. A funeral ceremony in the East Room of the Executive Mansion was attended by cabinet members and high-ranking military officers. The casket was then transported to City Hall in New York, where thousands filed past to pay their last respects. Finally, a train bore Ellsworth's remains to his hometown of Mechanicsville, New York, for burial in a grave overlooking the Hudson River. Sermons, editorials, songs, and poems proclaimed Ellsworth's heroism. Babies, streets, and even towns were named after him. Corporal Brownell was promoted to second lieutenant in the regular army. In New York City, volunteers quickly filled a regiment called Ellsworth's Avengers. And Remember Ellsworth became a popular patriotic slogan in the war's first months. Meanwhile, Southerners mourned for James Jackson, and honored him as a symbol of the Confederate defense of home and hearth against northern aggression. The local coroner ruled that, quote, he was killed in defense of his home and private rights, end quote.
We wanted to share what we think is an interesting footnote, but on the same day that Elmer Ellsworth and James Jackson were killed in Alexandria, on the same day the Union regiments were crossing the Potomac and seizing that first foothold in Virginia, a fellow out in Illinois wrote a letter to U.S. Army Adjutant General Lorenzo Thomas. This fellow was a West Point graduate and a Mexican War veteran who had resigned from the Army about six years before, and since then he had been rather spectacularly unsuccessful at any civilian occupation he'd put his hand to. When war broke out in April 1861, he was working at the family leather goods store in Galena, Illinois. Since then, he'd been involved helping organize the state militia being raised for federal service. But in May, he sat down to write to the U.S. Army Adjutant General. He said, quote, I have the honor, very respectfully, to tender my services until the close of the war. I would say, in view of my present age and length of service, I feel myself competent to command a regiment if the president, in his judgment, should see fit to entrust one to me, end quote. Well, he would receive no reply to that letter, nor would his subsequent attempts to see Department of the Ohio Commander George McClellan yield any better results. And oh, the name of that fellow out in Illinois who offered his services to the regular army and thought himself competent to command a regiment? His name was Ulysses S. Grant. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this week is The Grand Design, Strategy in the U.S. Civil War by Donald Stoker. If you're interested in a book that gives a really outstanding grand overview of the strategies of both the Union and Confederacy, then The Grand Design needs to be in your Civil War library. Uh, Stoker, from the big picture strategic vantage point, offers a, a clearly communicated military and political history of the war that explains the the hows and whys of both the Confederate and Union's pursuit of victory. So that's The Grand Design, Strategy in the U.S. Civil War by Donald Stoker. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the show's website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then we want to thank a couple of y'all who made your way to the website this past week and made donations to the podcast. So thank you to Mitchell H. and Andrew L. Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, just yesterday, we used your donations to order a couple of new books. Well, some new used books. But anyway, we really appreciate your support of the podcast. And then we also want to thank Spiritwood Music for giving us permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music at the beginning and end of every episode. And thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week when we look at the Philippi races. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. That means it's time for this episode. <laughs>
can I try again? <laughs>